During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a new podcast I think you should check out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, but they don't censor their words or their politics. So hear me out mid-show when I tell you all about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at racism on a more personal level than usual, with a focus on individual lived experiences that still speak to the systemic nature of racism more broadly. Clips today are from Help Me Find Your Parents on YouTube, Even More News, Refinery29, Sonia Renee Taylor, Code Switch, Glad You Ask, and Hidden Brain. Hi there. Hi. Nice day, huh? Yeah, finally, right? Where are you from? Your English is perfect. San Diego. We speak English there. Oh, uh, no. Uh, <clears throat> where are you from? Well, I was born in Orange County but I never actually lived there. Uh, I mean before that. Before I was born. Yeah, like, well, where are your people from? Well, my great-grandma was from Seoul. Korean. I knew it. I was like, she's either Japanese or Korean. But I was leaning more towards Korean. Amazing. Ham <laughs> Shasina. There's a really good teriyaki barbecue place near my apartment. So I actually really like kimchi. Cool. What about you? Where are you from? San Francisco. But where are you from? Oh, I'm, I'm just American. Really? You're Native American? No, uh, just regular American. Oh, well, uh, I guess my grandparents are from England. Oh, well... Hello, governor! What's all this then? Top of the morning to you. Let's get a small tea, small tea! Double, double, toil and trouble! Mind the gap! Beware, Jack the Ripper! Bloody hell! Pip pip! Cheerio! I think your people's fish and chips are amazing. You're weird. Really? I'm weird? Must be a crane thing. You've done a lot of wonderful things, and you've got some cool projects coming up, and, and it, a lot of it deals with being a body of color, the pressures of being a body of color in entertainment in Los Angeles, or even just out and about in the world. And I, I would love, I'd love to hear you talk about some of these these projects and the stories and experiences of what brought you here and, and the things you're working on. I want to use the term in this for now. I just, I like putting this term on blast. And so this feels like a good opportunity. Resma Menicum says this beautiful thing. He says bodies of culture, not bodies of color, which I really like, you know, bodies with history. Yeah. I work in, I work in story and in telling stories. And, uh, you know, a lot of my stories use the word pressure, right? They're the pressures of, of, of being a body of color or a body of culture. But I think what I'm more interested in currently is, sure, there's pressure, you know, but uh, I believe one of the one of the things I can do through my writings or my essay or, you know, like a, a film I make is I can allow someone else to, I don't need them to feel my pressure. Mm. Uh, I just need them to realize uh how in simple acts, 
you know, I'll take two films, for example. I have that New York Times one, the Calm Your Curls one. How simple acts like cutting your hair, um, for some people, can just be cutting your hair. And for some people, it can be years of self-hate, years of doubt whether you can even, you should have hair that curly or that thick, you know. Uh, how sometimes such a simple act as cutting your hair carries so much weight. Mm-hmm. Or this other film I made for Outside Magazine, how a simple act like running for some people is just a jog in the park. And for some people, it's it's a jog that you have to smile through. Yeah. And you have to keep your head mm-hmm. and who's around you, right? Like uh, something that guides my work a lot, everything I do is James Baldwin. He says, uh, the great plight of man is man's inability to imagine another man to imagine his existence, to imagine his weight. Um, And so I I hope that I'm making art and telling stories that allow people to imagine another person's existence. I have a moment in, I have this show where the real James Bond was Dominican. Because yes, James Bond was based on a Dominican man. (laughs) Yeah, I want to come back and have you tell us a little bit about that too. That's Uh, important. (laughs) But yeah. And I I have this moment where I tell people that when I was a kid, my grandmother used to tell me to sleep with a clothespin pinched to my nose to help keep it thin. That that's what they would do back in the campo. That, you know, every night you would, you would squeeze your nose with a clothespin. And I, does that work? I then, (laughs) it did not work. Trust me. (laughs) It doesn't work. (laughs) Trust me. It didn't work. (laughs) Um, and then I tell, uh, the audience, we, we hide clothespins under their chairs. And so everyone takes out a clothespin. Okay. You know? There's a lot of awkward giggles. and like, ha, ha, ha. And yeah. You'd also be surprised how many people were told the same thing. Um, and then I ask people to put it on. You know, we share that moment together. And that's it. I move on with the show. We take it off. We go forward. They get to keep it as a souvenir if they want. And after the show, we do a talk back and... Uh, before the pandemic, this was this was the last time I did it live before I'm heading to New York right now. And uh, this man, six year old white man said, I'm really sorry, but I zoned out for the rest of the show after the clothespin moment, because for the first time in my life. I could actually understand. That I never had to think about my body. Oh. You know, so he says I, I missed I miss the remainder of your show. Because he was but thinking the, about that. He was feeling it. He wasn't thinking yeah. about it. He was mm. feeling it. We can yeah. think all we yeah. want, but until we feel it, yeah. it doesn't change. Yeah. We can think all we want. We can talk about systemic stuff. We can talk about it. We can talk, but, but like, and this is why it takes time. And this is why it challenges hope. People have to feel it. Yeah. Someone has to not be afraid of a young black man. They have to feel it. Someone has to not be afraid of a young black man. Someone has to not be afraid of a large black man with a fake $20 bill. They just have to not be afraid. They have to feel it. Oh, this is a person. Like, I'm a person. To recognize the humanity in another person like themselves, to understand that we are not different. Our circumstances, society, all of these things have made us think that we're different. Do you find that you're reaching a lot of people? That's one story. Do you have, have you had similar experiences in, in taking this work around? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a lot of stories like that. You know, when I tell this is with, with Nada, 
not a white body, but a young Pakistani kid, you know, in New York, uh, Pace student. And uh, same play, real James Bond was Dominican. He said, um, after the show, he said, my whole life I thought I needed heroes and superheroes who look like me, but I just needed regular people telling their story. And, and I think that's extremely, like, I think, you know, I'm really passionate about media and proper representation you know, responsible representation, as I like to call it, um, like societal responsibility that we represent what colors and shapes and people actually look like in the world. Because then it's possible, you know, if we keep it in this conversation of, you know, a white officer being afraid, if white officer was more like had more images of when Harry met Sally's who happened to be brown and black white officer might just see that person as a Harry met Sally, not as a, as a villain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big part of this, our cultural representations for sure. And the fact that our current media landscape, although better, I guess, than in the past does not, like you said, accurately represent our, our, I mean, anything globally, but especially here in America, who we are and how diverse we are. You know, I've, I, Chris is also an actor. Uh, so he has lots of experience auditioning in LA and I'm sure you've had your share of, of white actors complaining about being white. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like how hard it is to be white right now. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I want to hear. It's so fucking frustrating. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with somebody, a, a white actor who, was like, well, the truth is, is that there's just more white actors. Like there's, there, there's less, there's less black people competing for a role versus there are white people competing for the roles. So it's hard and it's frustrating. There should be more roles because there's more. And I was like, Ooh, I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. Oh, are there too many white actors? Is it because you grew up feeling entitled like you should be on TV because you saw lots of white people on TV and you're like, yes, I can do it. So like, how come there aren't more black actors? We'll just go with that. How come? Is it because that there aren't a lot of opportunities and they haven't been raised to believe that they have a place in the media landscape? You know, the conversations like that. I just get really frustrated. How did he uh, absorb that? You're just like, well, yeah. Fair, <laughs> you know, didn't want to you know, <laughs> confront that. But um, I want to hear a little bit about how James Bond was Dominican, because you told me about this before, and uh, I thought it was very cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, his name was Porfirio Rubirosa. He was twice the richest man in the world when he was married to Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke. Uh, those are two of his five mar- marriages. Was he married to them at the same time? Okay. Separate times. But uh, very short, brief times. But, uh, yep. And he was a Dominican diplomat. He was stationed all over the world. He was stationed in Hitler's Germany, where he smuggled thousands of the Jews out of, the, out of Germany into the DR by selling them, like, fake Dominican visas. And uh, stationed in uh, Hitler's, uh, not Hitler's, uh, Castro's mm. Cuba during the revolution. And smuggled guns from Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, and the New York City mob, best friends with Sinatra and Kennedy and the whole Rat Pack, and just this kind of, uh, also best friends with Ian Fleming. Uh, and, okay. you know, would spend mm-hmm. months together at Ian Fleming's Golden Eye Estate and at casinos in Monte Carlo. And, um, you know, Ian 
Fleming is on record saying I based the character of James Bond on this man. And I read this Vanity Fair article that said this and I was, my world was shattered and I wondered why isn't everyone as obsessed with this as me? Like, how did this, how did this article not go viral? Like what, yeah. what am I, what am I missing? Like, why is this not the biggest news topic in the world? And, and, and that was the first time in my life I asked the question, like, cause I grew up, I'm a huge James Bond fan. And, you know, I wondered how would my life have been different if the character I love most looked like me or looked like my father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if I wasn't running around in my tidy whities with my Nerf gun, you know, putting on a fake British accent. Yep. Like, like wh- what would I have thought about myself? I'm a Korean American. I'm Bengali American. Chinese American. Filipino American. Chinese American. I'm a 1.5 generation American, a third culture kid, and an Asian American. I'm proud to be Asian American because this is the only face I have, so I might as well be proud. As an Asian American, I struggled with everything and everyone, and myself. When I was younger, my mom would always like pack me Filipino food for lunch at school, and I never wanted to eat it in front of everyone because I just didn't want to go through having to explain it to people. People would ask like, oh, how come? Asians always stick together. Growing up, I would be embarrassed if it was like a whole bunch of Asians like outside the library and I'm like, oh my God, how Asian of us. I think for me, there's always been this sort of struggle of being too white or too Asian, not white enough or not Asian enough. A lot of the conflict came from both sides. My peers, people in my community. My parents' accents or foreign food. I have come to appreciate and understand how where I've been determines where I'm going to go. People definitely don't ever think about people from Bangladesh as being Asian. They don't even think about people from Bangladesh. Who really am I outside of these categories that people know? I don't wear a hijab. I used to, but it's my choice. I'm covered inside internally. I don't need that statement outside to show you that I'm a Muslim. When it comes to AAPI folks, there's such a diversity of where we come from and who we are and our family histories and ties. There are over 40 countries in Asia and every family and every person is unique and different. People are always telling me that I don't look like the stereotypical Bengali because I don't look like a Bollywood actress. And I know that I look like me. All Asians don't look the same. That microaggression stuff from even strangers, like ni hao, where are you from? Why don't you just say hi to me like you would with anyone else? Dating guys with like goal was to like date every Asian girl. Don't fetishize Asian girls because we're not all the same. Go, are you from the North or the South? And like, I know that's like a legitimate maybe curiosity, but like, if I am here, then I'm probably not from the North. It's like people, they're like, oh, we give you a platform for Asian Americans. And yet all it is these sort of lunchbox stories of saying, you know, all I had growing up was people not understanding me. The white kids didn't get me. They didn't think I was white. And I think that is a larger question of who do we want to accept us and us accepting ourselves first. I started to really appreciate and value my Filipino heritage when I started hearing from my parents and my family how they uprooted their entire lives to build something new gave me a whole different perspective. I'm proud of being Chinese because of the sacrifices my parents made and their resilience to push our culture forward. Asian American No Hyphen was created for us 
by us to claim our stories and our time. There are so many different and diverse cultures to learn about and be excited about that we shouldn't narrow our viewpoint to just one or two cultures in Asia. I am happy to be in America and I want Asian Americans to be able to be a part of all spheres of life and industry and highlight those voices that just don't often get included in the conversation. We really are just like a whole rainbow of like beautiful cultures. People from the Asian and Pacific diaspora are not a monolith. We're all so different and we have so many different stories to tell. As immigrants, as children of immigrants, being ourselves is worthy and that we don't need some kind of levels of success predetermined by somebody else to determine who we are and who we get to be. I think that the most beautiful part about being human is that we're all different. There's a podcast, it's called Unfucking the Republic. It's new, and you should listen to it. Oh, oh more? Uh, okay. Um, uh, basically, uh, the Republic is pretty fucked up, and Unfucking the Republic explains how we can unfuck it. To do that, they publish every couple of weeks, and uh, I, I gotta say, the reviews have been rave. And I don't want to say I told you so, but I did sort of tell you so. In fact, the people listening to it seem to like it so much that the following the show is getting is turning a little bit toward the rabid. So let's just say that I'm glad I'm on their side. For a recent recommendation from their catalog, you're definitely going to want to check out their dive into the process of manufacturing consent with a particular focus on Rupert Murdoch and what it took for him to be able to make one of the world's most effective propaganda machines, which... Seems like something pretty worthwhile to understand. If you haven't given the show a chance yet, I'm not saying it's inexcusable. I'm just saying that you should probably be prepared to explain yourself. Or better yet, just go give the show a listen. You can find them wherever you get your podcast by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link in our show notes. What's up, y'all? Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, today's been a heavy, heavy, heavy day for me. Um, I feel devastated um, about the death of um, Makia Bryant and, and devastated about the ways in which, you know, we tell, you know, the, you know, we black folks um, are, you know, buying into the narrative that somehow this is different because she had a knife and these sorts of things. And so I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk a little bit about the fallacy of that argument. And then I want to talk a little bit about why, why we buy that argument. Um, and this is true. This is true for black people about why we buy that argument. For white people, it's a different reason for, you know, and then, you know, for other POC, I think it depends on, you know, where where it is that they are navigating their own sort of internalized white supremacist delusion, right? Here's the deal. For a significant portion of my life, I worked with... Um, Youth in group homes. I worked with youth in um, locked facilities. I worked with youth in therapeutic wilderness programs. I have had 
all manner of youth fighting, youth pulling knives on each other. I've had, um, I, when I worked at camp, the kids stole axes. Like when I worked at camp, <laughs> the kids had saws and hammers and axes, right? And it threatened, right? Threatened each other, threatened, you know, like threatened to beat each other with logs, like, you know, threatened to do the things that children, particularly troubled children, children who are navigating emotional and mental trauma, abuse, often show up and act out in, right? So that's not actually unusual. It's not shocking. Like, there's a way in which we have really allowed the criminalization of black bodies and the adultification of black bodies to have us manage black bodies, the bodies of black children, to manage the bodies of black children with the lens of adulthood. And this started in the 80s with zero tolerance policies where we were suspending black kids for taking butter knives to school in their lunch. So get into it, the 80s and 90s when these zero tolerance policies began in schools, which again was one, these are one of the institutional ways in which we slide in, you know, cart the carceral state on the lives of black children. Right. And so what ended up happening is that we criminalized child behavior, you know, and we criminal and we criminalized child behavior when the child behavior was just child behavior, and then we super criminalized child behavior when the child behavior was coming from children who had particular mental health challenges or trauma or other particular issues that they were navigating, right? Now, somehow, in the many years that I spent working in facilities with kids with behavioral and emotional challenges who fought, who threatened, who threatened to harm themselves, to harm others, etc., we never, ever shot anybody. You didn't even have the option to shoot anybody. It was never even an option. You learned how to de-escalate behaviors. So, so, so there is no excuse is what I'm offering. There's zero excuse. There is zero excuse to shoot a child five, four times in the chest. And part of the reason that we think that there's an, well, so part of the reason, the logic behind a police officer shooting a child four times in the chest is that it's not a child to them. That all black bodies and specifically black bodies coded in certain ways. She was a fat black girl. So immediately she was a big black woman, right? A big black woman with a weapon in the imagination of the police state. No different than Mike Brown, no different than Eric Garner, no different than George Floyd, because we already know that it doesn't even take you to be that big for the police to decide to shoot you. Tamir Rice was small. Adam Toledo was small, right? But the justification inside of the like violent white supremacist delusional imagination of the police state is that the, the black body is danger, right? The black body is already a danger. The black body is already um, disposable. And the larger the body is, the more dangerous and the more disposable we need to render it. 
And so that is one thing. And so, and so there is no excuse. Like there's no excuse. Every day in group homes and foster care services, grown ass adults who learn how to deal with and de-escalate children with emotional and behavioral problems who sometimes even have weapons. And historically we did it always. Right? So no, there is no excuse. But let me tell you why someone might align with that, particularly why black people might be aligning with that argument. And it allows me to access a level of compassion, right? Because I saw my friend um, Yaba Blay post the other day. She said, I learned how to fight white people. I don't know how to fight my people. And I can't believe that somebody would be on my page, like excusing the death of this child. And I want to tell you what trauma does to you. Trauma makes you figure out how you might not have to be it, right? The trauma of watching black death all the time, indiscriminately, will make us try to find ways in which we can say it won't be us. Otherwise, we'll be living in constant fear, constant activation, constant cortisol surges all the time, which we already are, right? But every time there's some possibility that we can make this some outlier, that we can make police murdering us something within our control, we will try to grasp that because it is so much easier to think that there is something that that little girl could have done to keep herself from getting killed than it is to think it doesn't matter what you do, police are committed to murdering your body because that is what that system says you do to black bodies. And it doesn't matter if you comply, if you've got a knife, if you've got a nothing, and none of it matters. And we actually know this, right? Because you can look at the list of black folks who have been killed and it doesn't matter what they're doing. They're just living and they're dead now, right? But because the need is to, to regulate our own trauma response, we're constantly trying to figure out how I might could have not ended up in this situation. If we can if we can make the deaths our own fault or the fault of someone else, then it means what happened to them won't happen to us. That's the lot. That's the the logic behind that thinking. And it's a trauma response, y'all. You know, so I understand it and I have compassion for it, and. And it's a lie you're telling yourself. And I understand why you're telling yourself because you're afraid. Because you're afraid for your children. Because you're afraid for yourself. And you'd like to think that there might be something that you could do that would keep this state from taking the life of someone you love or your own life. And I hate to say, but it is true, that there is nothing that you can do inside of the conditions of the state to keep the police from killing you beyond abolishing the police. It's the only thing. The only thing that will stop that system from murdering black people regardless of what they do is that that system ceases to exist. So and what that's it. so if you can access that in you when you hear it and if you can access the honesty in yourself when that response comes up well she had a knife like 
I'm like, my aunt pulled a knife on me as a child. Like, <laughs> this is not unusual. It's really not. But we have allowed decades of conditioning us to to carcerally treat young black people, right? So that now we believe that everything, every interaction we're seeing is criminal. When some of it is just the irrationality of childhood. And if you're a white person making the argument, well, she had a knife. Then you're just a white person who's deeply committed to trying. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to also offer an, an end of compassion to the thinking behind whiteness in this as well, right? If you're, I would assume that if you are a white person who actually proclaims to be on the side of any kind of justice and you find yourself trying to rationalize why the police might have killed this child, there are two things happening. One of it is underneath it, absolutely some white supremacist delusion that makes black bodies less um, human than other bodies, right? And whether or not you've brought that to consciousness or not, I assure you it's running in the background because it is the conditioning of whiteness. You know, but the other part of it is, right, it's still, again, the not the desire not to align to that which is the most terrifying outcome, right, or the t most terrifying possibility. Because if the most terrifying possibility is that whiteness will just continue to murder black people because that is the only way in which whiteness knows how to exist, Right. And you feel impotent around that. And you also feel like it is gross to be aligned with whiteness in that way. Like, so instead of like dealing with the discomfort of that, you make an excuse for why this could have been resolved had she done something different. And what I would offer to you is be in the discomfort of, yes, this is indeed whiteness and the structures that whiteness has built. And what it will continue to do to black bodies. And then align yourself to the movement and work of abolition. If you are still telling yourself that we need police, you are on the side of the fucking enemy at this point. Anybody who's still telling themselves that we need police when we keep seeing what police do. And I ain't seen yet what the fuck police do that is in service of my protection and my well-being. Or the well-being and protection of the people that I love. I ain't seen that shit. But every day I watch the motherfuckers kill somebody. If that's the shit you're still saying we need, you are on the side of the enemy. Stop. It's You don't have to imagine something new. Because other people have already been doing that work. Align yourself with them. Nobody's asking you to figure out what we do without police. We're already working on that. Find the people who are working on that and align yourself with them. This has got to stop. Take care of black people this week. If you're a black person, take care of black people this week. If you're a white person, a person of color, a non-black POC, figure out how you can offer care and love to this incessant trauma we are experiencing. All right. Bye, y'all. So, Kamari... All month long, folks from these communities have been answering that question. How do you define where you come from? 
and video and audio stories have aired across NPR all month answering that question. And people have answered in a bunch of different ways, like talking about their jobs, their families, the food that they ate growing up, the languages they do and don't speak. But a huge part of answering that question, before we even get to all this other stuff, is actually about our names. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, because as someone with a name that you don't hear very often in the U.S., the simple act of introducing myself becomes this like whole thing. Yeah. And people are like, that's such a beautiful name. What does it mean? And where is it from? And where are you from? It's like it gives people license to be super creepy and nosy. And then with my last name, they really make sure that I know just how difficult it is for them to say it. Yes. I just have so many awful memories of childhood when people would call me Calamari or they would like punch me in the arm and be like, sorry, Kamari, sorry, Kamari. Like they love saying sorry, Kamari because it rhymed or something. And just Oof. all this just made me feel super weird about my name and I didn't want to say it and I didn't want to introduce myself. And it's just been a whole adulthood process of unpacking that and learning to love my name. Yeah. I'm so sorry you went through all that. And yeah, it's so othering. Like when I was in college, I remember personally, like I'd be in like a loud place, like at a party or something. And people thought I was stuttering like Julie. And at one point, I actually started going by Julie at Starbucks, but then my brother gave me a ton of crap because, of course, brothers. But he's like, why aren't you being true to yourself and, like, the name that our parents gave you? Yeah, because I feel—so I also go by Cuckoo a lot, and then I feel like a lot of people have a lot to say about that. Like, they think I'm selling out or being a traitor to myself by not— saying my beautiful given name but yeah a lot of my people in my family call me cuckoo and it's it doesn't have to be this huge loaded thing like if i also feel like cuckoo but i feel like a lot of people just have a lot to say about how i want to call myself or what they want to call me yeah and i think ultimately it is up to us which brings me to the conversation that you're going to hear in this episode it's between two friends lovey and tiffany I am Love You Jai Jones. I am a New York Times bestselling author. I am a speaker and a podcast host, a lover of words and stories. So, Tiffany, who are you? First of all, two time two New York best girl. Two time. <laughs> For clarity, I am Tiffany Luce, much better known as the Budgetista, America's favorite financial educator, self proclaimed. You know, you feel me. Yeah. yeah. And I am a friend of LaVette. Yeah. <laughs> Lovey and Tiffany have been really close ever since they first met years ago. I just remember seeing you, you know, pop up on social and thinking you were hilarious because. I was looking at you like she sounds like my cousin or my sister. This is how we talk to each other. So I really connected with your personality online. Yeah. By the time we met, I'd already felt like I'd already known you for a long time. <laughs> yep. I remember that. And the one thing we left out is that we are both Niger girls. We're both Nigerian. Mm-hmm. You know, rocking the green, white, green in our blood. <laughs> While Lovey was born in Nigeria, Tiffany was born and raised in the U.S. Her parents immigrated here from Nigeria. They've both experienced some deep identity questions around their given names. And when people can't say your name correctly, you do things to take back ownership of that name. You might change your name to a new one. You might shorten it. You might only go by your given name with people that you trust for survival. Here are Lovey and Tiffany. Ife Olua, that's like my first name. My family calls me Ife. Mm -hmm. My name means God's love. Mm-hmm. So the EFET part is the love. My aunt used to sometimes call me the uh, Levette as a nickname. Mm-hmm. So 
when I was nine, we moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Downtown Chicago is where we moved. So most of the kids didn't even look like me. And they, for some reason, thought Jamaica was Africa. <laughs> and I remember the principal walking me to my class and kind of like pushing me in the class and, and the teacher being like, oh, welcome to our new student. Introduce yourself. Mm. And nine-year-old me was instantly like, my name is too different. The way I'm talking is too different. It's not going to work. So I instantly, instead of saying my name, mm-hmm. when the teacher goes, introduce yourself, I go, my name is Lavette. And of mm. course, it came out real nice. Yeah, my name is Lavette. Because <laughs> <laughs> like it came out real extra oh. strong because I was this girl. Yeah. It's funny that you said at nine is when you made that transition because that's when we made our transition from like the small little town Roselle. Mm-hmm. Mostly working class, black and brown families to Westfield, New Jersey, mm-hmm. which was a bigger town and almost completely white. And I, too, made a transition with my name during that time. Mm-hmm. So up until nine, everyone, friends, everyone called me Odochi, which means God's gift. Odo is gift and chi. So in Igbo, chi, chukwa, like the, this is God. I know in, in your yes. body. Oluwa is God. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so Odochi was my name, God's gift or God's present. Right. And so I remember we were going to move to Westfield and my father decided, he said, we're moving to this new town and I'm wanting it to make it easier for you guys. You can choose another name to add to your name. Mm. And I was excited, you know, I didn't think, you know, anything of it. I was like, yes. So he literally let everyone choose their name. And he said, you have the summer to decide. So my sisters and I would try out names and I would say, okay, this week, call me Jenny. That was one of, that was a viable option. Jenny. Oh, Jenny. <laughs> you will be calling Jenny the Bojanista. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, but then I was like, mm, I don't like it. Like, hey, Jenny. Hey, I was like, Mm-mm. and then I remember I wanted Renee. And I was like, mm, I liked Renee. I could see myself as a Renee. You know, okay. Right? okay. But then, like, there was another Renee in class, and when I told her, she was like, "You tried it. That's my name." <laughs> and then, oh, thank goodness, my dad said no. But I wanted Symphony. I was like, "Ooh, ma'am, yes. Symphony, though." <laughs> yes. I said it's different. He said too different. And then, but I always liked the name Tiffany, and so I told him, "I think I like Tiffany." And my friends loved it. I loved it, and so Tiffany, I became. Yes. But it took me, I would say, a good two years. To answer to Tiffany because it just was not my name. So people would call the house and say, can I speak to Tiffany? And literally my sisters and I would say, there's nobody here, you know, by that name. But I just think it's so interesting how- you take on these new names. Yes. But in, a, in an effort to protect what we held dear, which is our true identity. Yeah. Because for me, it wasn't even a matter of, I was ashamed of my name. Mm-hmm. It was that I wanted to protect it from other yes. people trying to make it ugly. You know, yes. like the moment they will see it, they'll instantly think I can't say it. Mm. So then they will add burden to the name. Yeah. And for me, it was my protective measure. Yes. It was a sacred space that I honored. It was also one of those things where because I'd already been the person I was for nine years, mm. I didn't change who I was when I got here. Mm-hmm. I still went home and spoke Yoruba. I still mm-hmm. ate pounded yam and a goosey. At home, I was still Ife. So all of that did not change. And then the, when I stepped outside the doors, it changed. Yes. But really, kids are really adaptable. Yeah, we are. And I, when I lived in Roselle, people had a hard time. They would say, OD. And I'm like, no, 
like the dog from from Heathcliff. Right. I'm like, it's, uh, you know, Adochi or Udo for short, if you're going to say it. And, and but one thing I do love about Adochi and having that name is that if you call me Adochi, then I'm like, oh, you know me because you're either yes. family or friends or you knew me in elementary school. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll rekindle with an elementary school mate on Facebook and they'll say, oh, my God, Adochi, I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, what? Yes. Oh, snap, Monica. Girl, yes. I think this is third grade. <laughs> I should be like, I had to double take. Like, who is Tiffany? That is not Tiffany. That is Adochi. No, that's real. You know? For me too. The name people call me tells me exactly what part of my life they met me in. No, I love that. I think that's beautiful. I think that, I don't know if you ever tried to transition back in college because in middle school, in elementary school, it was not cool to be other, right? It was not cool to be African, Haitian, Jamaican. It was not. They made fun of you. You know, so, but in college, it became very cool to claim, you know, like, oh, this is my heritage. So I tried to go back freshman year to having people call me Adochi. Okay. So I was like, hey, cause I'm like, you know, these people don't know me. So let's start off on the foot. Like my name's Adochi. After a month of hearing people butcher it day in, day out, teachers, friends, like, oh, I'm like, mm, literally, Adochi. It's three syllables. Super simple. And I said, I actually wanted to take it back. Like, it's like, it's almost like I wanted to take it from people's mouths and put yes. it back in my heart. Cause I was just like, no, let the people that know and love me call me by my name the correct way. You mm-hmm. can just call me Tiffany. And so, that's, yeah, that's yeah. a, that's a great point because when people see our names, no matter how simple we think our names are, people instantly ascribe difficulty to it. Mm-hmm. My last name is Ajayi. Well, now it's Ajayi Jones. But they will see Ajayi and be like, Alayi, AJ, Ayaji. And I'd be like, yo, there's no tricks. It is literally as it is spelled. And people will stumble over themselves Mm. with difficulty that doesn't really need to be there. So it's like people really see our names and instantly will attach burden that does not belong to it. Because they can say Tchaikovsky, Schwarzenegger, but you can't say... Ajayi? So I have this map. What I would love to do is map out what life expectancy looks like in New York, depending on your neighborhood. That kind of works. Okay. (laughs) So we're going to use green for anything that is above the New York City average of 81.2 and pink for anything that is below. Okay. What is Washington Heights? 84.4. East Holland, 77.9. 77.9. So Upper East Side, that's where we are right now. 86.4. Okay. And this already is like almost a 10-year difference. Yeah, it's a start. Thank you. 86.3, Murray Hill. One thing I think is really interesting with these numbers is like if the Upper East Side were its own country, it would be like the second best place to live for longevity in the world. But then look at this as you're clustered here mm-hmm. in East Harlem and Central Harlem yeah. is not a good place in terms of life expectancy. Right. And people in the majority white area are living almost a decade longer than people in a majority non-white area. Huge difference. Can you explain why that is? 
think about the socioeconomic differences between these two communities. Yeah. That difference in income would affect access to quality health care, food, transportation. All of those factors play a role in life expectancy. Yeah. So does socioeconomic status explain the whole picture? No. I may be stressed for other reasons. You know, I'm African-American, maybe I'm having stressors in my workplace, or maybe I'm having stressors finding quality health provider, or maybe I feel like I'm being discriminated against. Whereas, you know, someone that is not a minority in the same socioeconomic status may not have those same stressors. Your race plays a huge part in how long you can expect to live. If you are Hispanic, you can expect to live to almost 82, almost 79. If you are white, about 75 if you're black. That is a three-year age difference between Hispanic people and white people, and a four-year gap between black people and white people. Even when you control for education and income, even the health behaviors, there's still a gap. I feel like this all makes sense. It's just never something easy for me to accept. So those longevity counts don't really explain the full story. So if you look at the percentage of people who report being in very good or excellent health among people who self-identify as white and are also socially assigned white, that number is 58%. What does it mean to be socially assigned white? So that just means that people perceive you as white. And for people who self-identify and are socially categorized as Hispanic, that number is 47%. So despite longer life expectancy, fewer Hispanics report being in good health. That difference right there is the health gap. But if we look at people who self-identify as Hispanic, who pass as white, their health outcomes are almost on par with white people. And we see that same effect for Native Americans. Those who pass as white have health outcomes that are almost on par with white people. And that difference is even more drastic for people who are mixed race. So if you are mixed race, but you are perceived as black, your health outcomes wind up being much worse. My biggest takeaway from this is just how proximity to whiteness means that you're gonna be better off. So that means that if they go to the hospital or they're consulting with some kind of health professional, they will probably get better treatment it's fascinating the way whiteness works when it comes to health outcomes. It's like regardless of your background, the way that you're seen when you walk into a hospital or you're walking down the street. Yeah. That's what makes the biggest difference. Right. This plays out for me personally. I generally try to avoid having to go to the emergency room because I'm just always afraid about, again, how I'm going to be perceived. Yeah. I never really thought about how my race personally affected me as I, I, you know, walk into a hospital room, for example. My absence of understanding, my absence of knowledge is the point that shows something about the privilege of ignorance and of unawareness of these things that I've been able to have. But discrimination varies from place to place, and that led me to this. In 2015, a team of researchers led by this professor named David Che looked at the proportion of Google searches across America that used the N-word, specifically okay. the N-word ending in ERS, so that gets rid of any music lyrics, things like that. Absolutely. It's not a perfect measure of racism, but it provides like a good proxy measure of like the people who are more likely to do that are more likely to have okay. negative racial sentiment. 
So what they found is for every one unit increase of area racism in each media market, that corresponded with a 5.7% increase in black mortality. Racism kills. Like this is the first time I'm hearing of racism being quantified in this way. This is like really interesting. These three different studies seem to show that interpersonal racism might be this overlooked factor in negative health outcomes in this country. When someone says something racist to you, it's a comment that goes to the core of your being. Like, I cannot change the pigment of my skin, and it makes sense that, like, with every single incident that you have to deal with, with every racist encounter, like, it's taken years off your life. Like, that's crazy. Not to mention that the perpetrators of those treatment get to forget about it. Truly forget, And, you know, the people on the receiving end of that treatment don't get that privilege. Yeah. We're about to call David Williams. He's a professor at Harvard who studies the relationship between race, racism, and our health. Let's give him a call. Hi, Dr. Williams. How's it going? How are you? Pretty good. How does discrimination influence people's health? So we have known for a long time that stressful life experiences adversely affect health. And over the last 25 years or so, we have expanded the types of stressful life experiences that we study to include experiences of discrimination. Little indignities that seem to chip away uh, at the well-being of individuals on a day-to-day basis. What we've found is persons who score high on experiences of discrimination, they're more likely to get diabetes, breast cancer, heart disease, and the cumulative impact of the psychosocial stress and the economic stress and the discrimination leads to physiological deterioration, to weathering. They are literally aging more rapidly than the rest of the population in the United States. And how specifically does the anticipation of a racist encounter impact the health of people of color. Often, people are taking steps before they even leave home to minimize the occurrence of these experiences. And I'll be honest with you, I feel physiologically my blood pressure goes up anytime I see a police car driving behind me. And I've had good experiences with the police, but I've had bad experiences with the police. And it's that reality, that threat has a a physiological cost for me. And how does discrimination affect people from one generation to the next? There are studies of survivors of the Holocaust that that documents changes in gene expression that puts those persons who had the experience at higher risk of mental health problems such as PTSD. And that epigenetic change is evident also in their offspring. We haven't done that work yet in studies of discrimination. But women who report everyday discrimination while they are pregnant are more likely to give birth to lower birth weight infants. But after the child is born, there are a number of studies that find experiences discrimination by the father or by the mother has negative effects on the development of the child.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Help Me Find Your Parents, Turning the Tables on White Guys Who Ask Where You're Really From. Even More News had a wide-ranging discussion about everything from the cultural significance of hair to struggling white actors. Refinery29 highlighted a variety of voices describing the struggles of being an Asian American, no hyphen. Sonia Renee Taylor laid out an explanation for placing blame on victims as a trauma response and self-defense mechanism. Code Switch held a discussion about the complicated nature of having a name that is out of the mainstream, and Glad You Asked explained how personal stresses stemming from racism structurally create health gaps. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Hidden Brain in which they discuss a study examining the treatment for black patients comparing between white and black doctors. And they did find discrepancies, but probably not for the reasons that you're imagining. For non-members, that bonus clip is linked in the show notes and is part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find it if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now I have uh, just a little something to wrap up the show. There was a little piece of information that I learned in the midst of producing this episode that was only mentioned, uh, I mean, barely mentioned and not explained at all. So I, I wanted to give some detail to that. In one of the clips talking about Asian Americans, they specified there's no hyphen. And I thought, I want to know more about that because I grew up with talk of the so-called hyphenated Americans. This is a phrase that was used all through my childhood and into my teens and 20s, and I don't even know when it stopped being used or really if it has stopped being used because it was really used derisively by conservatives to try to shame people into sort of getting rid of their... Uh, history and culture. And basically, if you want to be an American, you have to be our brand of American. You have to drop the identifier that you are Asian American or African American or Mexican American or literally anything else. Get rid of the identifier, get rid of the hyphen, just be an American. And the implication is, well, you can kind of see where that, that goes, depending on who's saying it and what sort of meaning is, is coming behind it. And so this is, it's been a long standing conflict, but sort of grammatic, uh, culture war touch point almost. And the way that works. So I'll just explain the concept. Asian hyphen American is a noun. It is sort of the grammatical construction of joining two nouns with equal weight to one another. So a person who is Asian hyphen American is half Asian and half American is how you might think of it. But of course, that's not what people mean when they say that. And so Asian space American is an adjective describing a noun. American is the noun. Asian is the descriptor. So an Asian space American is an American who is being described as Asian. 
and the the history of of how this came about and it was you know came out of the sort of activist world trying to find a phrase that first of all could replace the really old-fashioned oriental which was being used as a derogatory term so they wanted to replace that and also create a unifying term because there are lots and lots of people from Asia from lots of different countries who live in America and so they wanted a term that was unifying for all Asians to identify with collectively, which does not mean that they cannot then also identify or more specifically identify as a Chinese American or Vietnamese American or anything else. But the term Asian American sort of being available for everyone from Asia to use creates a sort of solidarity. And so that, that was the idea behind creating it. And so to add more nuance and thoughtfulness than I'm capable of doing off the top of my head, I have a couple of uh, quotes for you. This is uh, Eric Liu in a 2014 essay, Why I Don't Hyphenate Chinese American. He says, words are expressions of power and identity, and even something as trivial as punctuation can say a lot about what it means to be American. Chinese is one adjective. I am many kinds of American, after all. A politically active American. A short American. An earnest American. An educated American. This is not a quibble about grammar. It's a claim about the very act of claiming this country." Unquote. And that's really getting to the heart of it, because the whole concept of a hyphenated American, as conservatives would derisively say, was basically a dog whistle or slightly more polite way of saying not fully American. You don't fully belong here. You are not fully a part of this country. And when that construction is adopted as someone being not fully American, it unlocks the door to all kinds of discriminatory actions and sentiments and all of that that would come along with it. So, Impressively, the LA Times has been way ahead of the game on this. So there's a quick couple of quotes from an article. I'm going to link this article in the show notes because it's for any grammar nerds, you definitely are going to want to check this out. So it says that in 1979, the LA Times style book called for the use of Asian American in place of Oriental. In November 1993, the paper removed the hyphen from all such terms as it distributed wide-ranging new guidelines on ethnic, racial, sexual, and other identifications. So 1993, depending on where you stand, might sound like a long time ago or not very long ago at all. But what you need to know is that the AP and other major newspapers only decided to get rid of the hyphen in 2018. So this is the first I was hearing of anyone deciding to get rid of it. I knew that it was sort of problematic, but I didn't look any deeper into it than that. And it was extremely recent that it was adopted in a more widespread way by major news organizations with very influential style books saying we should not use the hyphen. So 1993, for the LA Times to be ahead of the game like that, Congratulations to them. But this is really interesting. The As was just mentioned in that paragraph, this was part of a 
wide-ranging change to their style book back in 93. So continuing that quote, the listings, some 200 in all, covered subjects including gender stereotypes, sexual orientation, mental illness, immigration status, and religion. They discouraged, for example, the use of crippled, handicapped, and invalid to describe those with disabilities. Unquote. And then here's the really unsurprising bit. Quote, the guidelines inspired derisive articles in the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, U.S. News and World Report, and other publications. Commentators labeled the Times editors, quote, the thought police and big brother, purveyors of so-called political correctness. The editor of the paper, Shelby Coffey III, wrote to the Post in defense, quote, Looking at how language has affected those who have been scorned, ignored, and excluded is a worthy task for a newspaper, unquote. So everything that's old is new again, and I, I will leave you with the, the last quote from this article, which uh, should instill some degree of, of hope and perspective. Quote, Many of the then-new guidelines that drew such ire are commonplace and generally accepted in the wider culture today. The passage of time, in that sense, is the great unifier, more powerful than any punctuation or style book could ever be." Unquote. So between removing the hyphen and socially assigned race, which was also explained in today's show, I ended up learning two things on that day doing this research. So I was ahead of the average on that day. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support, or from right inside the Apple Podcast app, if that's your style. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. 